Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're going to continue our series in the book of Matthew today called The Mysteries of Compassion. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Signs of the Times. I don't know if you knew this, but there are people who are futurists. I mean, that's their job. Futurists pay attention to various trends. They, they look for trajectories, and they predict either the market, fashion trends, or, or social movements. I saw one website about futurists which was entitled, The Coolest Job You Never Knew You Could Have. You know, it turns out there are some universities that actually give degrees in futuring. It's not about fortune-telling. Rather, it's about collecting and analyzing information. It requires a great deal of reading and then organizing huge amounts of data that's are available to you. It requires that those in this field collaborate with a lot of people, everyone from engineers and designers to CEOs and PR departments. Well, at any rate, all sorts of people use futurists, you know, from politicians to people designing new products. It's also fun to read books by futurists. They'll tell the rest of us where they think the world is going. If you're going to be a good futurist, you have to learn to observe the signs of the times. And as we know, men and women who can read the signs of the times do have an advantage in almost every area in life over those who are unable to do so. That's a fact. In our study of the compassion and grace of Jesus, we've watched as Jesus displayed a remarkable grace to both Jews and Gentiles. His unwillingness to send people away and his willingness to preach to the crowds about the kingdom of heaven and his willingness to heal the sick and the broken, well, all of that showcases his marvelous compassion. And of course, his ministry and his message is growing. Herod knows about him. The religious establishment in Jerusalem is becoming increasingly alarmed and concerned. And for some time now, Jesus has gone over to Gentile territory. At first, he was in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and then on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, which is in the region of the Decapolis, 10 Gentile cities. And when we come to Matthew 16, he's come back to the Galilee, the place where you find Jewish towns and villages where the blue-collar workers and the poor were only too happy to hear him and to bring their sick and the needy. So let's read today's passage. It's in Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. It says, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, when Jesus returned back to the Jewish territory, he was, he was greeted by an odd group. It was a combination of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And this is the first time in Matthew that we actually hear about Sadducees in Galilee. Now, on the one hand, you might argue, well, this group comprised of, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees. It really isn't that unusual. I mean, after all, both religious groups sat together in a 70-member ruling religious body, and that was called the Sanhedrin. But these two groups had a great many differences with each other. The Sadducees were the politically elite. They were the more wealthy of the two. 
all the high priests were Sadducees. The Sadducees often cooperated with the Roman authorities, while the Pharisees were hesitant to do so. But religiously, they were very different. As we've seen in our study of Matthew, the Pharisees did claim to submit to the authority of the Bible, but they also gave equal authority to the oral traditions that had been handed down to them from the elders. The Sadducees would have none of that. If they didn't find a command or a teaching in the Bible, they dismissed it out of hand. These are just man-made rules, they said. And that's fascinating because when it comes to some of the debates that Jesus had with the Pharisees, well, you might have expected the Sadducees, if they had been there to hear it, that they would have shouted out, Amen. The Pharisees have substituted the traditions of men for the commands of God. But on the other hand, the Sadducees rejected certain beliefs that both Jesus and the Pharisees easily accepted. You know, for instance, the Pharisees, like Jesus, believed in life after death. They believed in the existence of angels and demons. They believed in the judgment of God in the world to come. But the Sadducees, they rejected all of that. They said, it's not found in the Hebrew scriptures. But there were other differences. The Sadducees were comprised of the wealthy classes of Israel. As I've said, the chief priests and the high priests were always Sadducees. The Sadducees were the majority in the Sanhedrin, part of the Jewish ruling council. And furthermore, it was the Sadducees who controlled the temple in Jerusalem. All the local synagogues were controlled by the Pharisees. So think of it this way. The Sadducees were the power players. They were the elitists. They controlled political power. The Pharisees were the teachers of the common people. That's the distinction between them. Now, in most cases, these two groups saw eye to eye on very, very little. But now, in a strange show of unity, they seem to have agreed that Jesus was a problem. They've come to Jerusalem, and the two groups have agreed it was time to end the Jesus movement. And so Matthew says that they have come to test Jesus. Well, the Greek word that Matthew has chosen for us can also be translated, they have come to tempt Jesus because they want him to produce a sign from heaven. We might think then of the temptation of Jesus, you know, at the beginning of his public ministry. Satan comes to him and says, throw yourself off the highest section of the temple wall and surely God will then give his angels charge over you. They'll catch you before you strike your foot on a stone. And then that will be a sign that will wow the crowds and that will dramatically increase your popularity. So fast forward to now where the Pharisees and the Sadducees come. Well, this might also be thought of as a temptation similar to Satan's temptation. At first blush, this sinister test, this prove your heavenly status by performing a sign from heaven. Well, it seems like a ludicrous request. I mean, haven't they been watching? He's been healing and he's been driving out demons and he's been walking on water and he's been feeding a large crowd with a few loaves and fish. I mean, you have to wonder what they want. I think the key to their test is that they wanted Jesus to produce a sign from heaven. We do have some examples of that in the Bible. You know, Joshua 10, Joshua's engaged in a crucial battle against the Amorites. It is a crucial battle, and he was in danger, that as the sun was setting, of not having completed the battle, and that would allow the enemy to reform their battle lines in the morning. So Joshua calls on God, and he wants the sun to stand still in the sky until the battle is done, and and God grants him that request. Or perhaps like Elijah and the priests of Baal, when fire fell down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice. Or perhaps, you know, like the days of Hezekiah, when the sundial went backwards. I think if I understand this request, 
The Sadducees and Pharisees are demanding that, that Jesus do a sign that affects the celestial bodies, that is, the, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars. You know, all this healing and this breaking of bread, well, they could have argued it was a cheap magician's trick. Do something outstanding, they say. Of course, Jesus refuses the request. Ultimately, his accusation of this group is that, you know, they know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but they have no idea of the sign of the times. They don't know what's happening around them. See, in short, Jesus is saying that these religious muckety-mucks, they have no idea of what's going on in Israel. They can't see the groundbreaking things that are happening. They don't recognize the kingdom of God, and they're entirely in the dark. You know, this is another example as to how Jesus responded to accusation. Instead of being knocked back on his heels, well, he frequently takes the accusation against himself, and then he goes on the offensive. He uses the example of predicting the weather from the trends one sees in the evening. He means very simply that in Israel, a red sky at evening will often result in very good weather the next day, whereas if it's just red and threatening, well, in that part of the world, it would mean that a storm is brewing. That's how to interpret weather patterns in the Middle East. So he says, you guys can prognosticate the weather, but you're completely clueless as to what spiritual signs you're now facing. And he means here, of course, that they haven't understood how a man can cure what would have been an incurable disease. You know, everything from lifelong blindness to raising people up who have never been able to walk. I mean, the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't know what that means when some people have been raised from the dead. I mean, what do they think it means? Do dead people usually rise? What days are we in when that happens? Don't they know? And when long-entrenched demons who have lived in this land for generations are now fleeing in terror, I mean, what days are they presently in? I mean, don't you think that, that your religious system, says Jesus to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, can predict signs of that grand nature? Now, how easy it is to ignore what God is doing and to have no idea what's coming next. Back to the Bible Canada has been privileged to have sat under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld for five years. We have seen the blessings of God upon this ministry, and one of those ways is the excellent teaching that Dr. Newfeld provides. God is at work in our nation, and that is something to celebrate. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating this milestone in ministry by offering you, our valued friends in ministry, Dr. John's newest series, Faith and What We Hope For and a special edition of our 2020 Highlight Reel series, which includes five of the most noteworthy messages from Dr. John on CD for you, free this month. It's a modest way of saying thanks for your support and encouragement. To request your gift today, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. One of the great mistakes of religious hypocrites is that they demand that God respond to them on their terms. You see, they imagine that they can set up the terms and conditions for God to respond. And then they say, he'd better come through and prove himself. I mean, think of the person who's in a personal crisis. God, that person says, if you heal me, I will serve you. I'll give to a certain cause or I'll stop sinning. I'll become a missionary. 
I mean, you name it. They're in a time of crisis and hundreds of people attempt to make a bargain with God. You know, behind all that bargaining, well, there's the idea that I have something that I might offer to God, something that he might want or need, and he has something to offer me that I might want or need. See, that view assumes arrogantly that God needs something that I can provide for him. People do this all the time. It's amazing. And there's an example of that in the life of Jacob. And so let me read it to you. It's found in Genesis 28, verses 20 to 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord will be my God. (laughs) It's quite a mouthful. I'll let you be my God if you'll fill this shopping list for me. Now, you've got to argue, well, didn't God do all those things for Jacob? And didn't Jacob finally bend the knee to God? Yeah, that's indeed exactly what happened. But please understand that all those things that Jacob demanded of God, well, those were things that God had already promised to do for him. And furthermore, Jacob's bad attitude, it only resulted in a world of painful problems for him. No one ever succeeds in attempting to bargain with God. But but that's the ploy of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They say, Jesus, do a great wonder in heaven for us. I mean, manipulate the planets while we watch. Well, Jesus might have answered, and then what? And they might have answered, well, then we'll believe you. Of course, we already know they wouldn't have believed him. They would simply have demanded more signs, and their opposition to him just would have continued. It was all just hypocrisy and show. But Jesus was in no mood to bargain with them. These men had received a direct visitation of God. They had received him. And then in order to make this point, Jesus said, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Well, what's the sign of Jonah? Now, I would argue that there are actually two signs that Jesus might have been referring to. Well, the first and most obvious is that Jonah was swallowed by a very large sea creature. And then after, you know, three days, he was vomited out alive. Now, that can't happen unless there's a miracle. And in the same way, Jesus would be crucified, and in three days, he would rise from the dead. That's the sign that was coming. But of course, when Jesus was raised from the dead, well, neither the Pharisees nor the Sadducees believed in him. I mean, they remained ardent opposers of his cause. They persecuted the early church. They continued on in their fierce opposition to him. In essence, this already proved their hard attitude. They're not interested in finding out what God is doing. They're interested in clinging to power. And interestingly enough, there were some Pharisees who apparently did convert after the resurrection, but these men, at least to a large part of them, they actually led the charge of what has been called the Judaizers. They wanted to make the Pharisaic tradition and wanted to bring it into the Christian church. And you'll remember how vehemently the apostle Paul opposed these men and denounced them. But there's a second way in which Jesus fulfilled the sign of Jonah. Uh, Dorian says that the mere presence of a Jewish prophet in a hostile city, that is, in the time of Jonah, it was in Nineveh, Jonah's presence was a sign of God. And in the same way, Jesus didn't need to do any signs for these men. His mere presence, God come in human flesh, that was the sign they never recognized. But this would be his only sign to them and to us. God come to us in the form of his son, living among us, declaring the kingdom of God, healing the sick, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, and offering us salvation. This is a great sign. 
It's all anyone ever needs. I want to get back to our theme. The Sadducees and Pharisees, although they were claiming to be experts in Scripture and in spiritual life, they were unable to understand the times in which they lived. Well, how about our day? Are we able to discern the times? Let me start by emphatically saying I'm not arguing that we can know if we're the generation that are going to see the Lord's return. I say that because, you know, I frequently read articles by Christians who claim they can tell emphatically that we are now in the very last days. So, for instance, from from the Olivet Discourse, which is recorded in Matthew 24, uh, these people will point out that Jesus said that in the last days there will be wars and rumors of wars. And then they point out that the number of wars in the world are actually increasing. I'm not even sure that's true, but, but there it is. Now, if you could read the signs telling you what the weather is and not understand that you're in the last days, well, say these teachers, you're very much like the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But have a close look at what Jesus actually said. It's found in Matthew 24, verse 6. Here he says, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. So did you notice? Jesus didn't say there would be more wars and rumors as we approach the end. He said, when you hear of it, don't be panicked. It's not the end yet. That is, this is not a sign of the end times. And if you think it is, you don't know how to read the times. Another example, Matthew 24, 7 to 8. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. You see, Jesus never said there would be more earthquakes than ever just before his coming. He said that wars and earthquakes would continue, but the end is not yet. Unless someone doubt me. See, I believe in the return of Jesus Christ. I believe it can stumble into our day at any time. But Jesus made it very plain that no one would know the day or the hour. So whatever we think about the end time, stop assuming we know whether or not we're the last generation. I don't care what it is, whether the fact that we're going cashless or whether or not technology is allowing government to spy on every citizen through our cell phone, whatever it is, all these things may seem ominous and they clearly infringe on privacy and they might even lead to wanton persecution, but none of this tells us where we are on the prophetic calendar. That's not how to read the signs of the times but I think it's possible to see some trends and tell us something about how the kingdom of God is functioning in this hour. It's hard not to see a major shift that's already occurred in North America. It's a shift in moral thinking. Marriage is less important to us than ever before. The first time in our history, more adults are single than married. It's now considered normal to have sex outside of marriage. It's now considered moral to engage in any form of sexual activity, provided it's consensual. Well, then what's next? Well, we can guess, but that's not my point. It's relatively easy to read these trends and miss something much greater. See, I see a sign in our time that Jesus spoke about. Jesus said that this gospel must be preached to all nations, and then he said the end would come. Now, of course, we can never tell exactly when the process is completed, but we do know that as the gospel is growing and encompassing the earth, we are indeed coming closer and closer to the time of Christ's return. What are the signs of our times? Well, right now, the only continent on earth where the gospel isn't growing but shrinking, that's Europe. It's the darkest spiritual place on the planet. The very place we once called Christendom now has very little left of the gospel of Christ. 
but in countries of the world once thought unreceptive to the gospel. We're seeing an unheard thing. The gospel is growing in India, China, in Iraq, in Indonesia, great many other countries that were up to now almost completely unreceptive to the good news. It's impossible to miss if you can discern the times. God is on the move. We're living in remarkable days. And all of that tells me that the great movements of this world, I mean, the things that really matter, well, they aren't actually happening in the traditional corridors of power or in government or military or in high finance. Rather, the things that are changing this world is this. The living Jesus is among us, and he is powerfully building his church and transforming the lives of people in places where the devil seems powerless to stop him. Now, of course, all of that's occurring in the midst of suffering for the people of God, and the devil is fighting back with the only weapons he has, hatred, imprisonment, death. But ours is a Lord who has risen from the dead, so we do not fear. How terrible then for futurists who can discern the stock market but can't see the signs of the times. The living Jesus, the crucified Lord who rose from the dead and is forever King of kings and Lord of lords, is building his church and claiming this world as his own. Soon he will be back to claim that which belongs rightly to him. John, I'm wondering, you know, regardless of where we are in history, uh, regardless of the signs of the times, would it be true to say our urgency has always been the same, though? It, well, <laughs> it should always be the same. It hasn't always. You know, there are times in the history of the church where, you know, the church was just building a political empire and trying to gain power over people. And the idea was, of course, that the, that the pope carries two swords. One is the civil sword and one is the spiritual sword. So, you know, we're looking at gaining authority over people. So we've lost complete track of what Christ has called us to do. Uh, we don't know what he's doing in the world. We're so, you know, engaged in political political causes. And by the way, might I say that, you know, it's so important for believers to disconnect from all the political rhetoric in our world and to connect deeply into the gospel of Jesus and to track what he's up to and to also recognize that this is a great hour for us to share the gospel. The urgency is so great. We've got to seize the day. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth in Life Today has been a wonderful journey of ministry. So many thoughtful, insightful guests shedding light on challenging topics of Christian life. While now in 2020, we look forward to continuing Truth in Life Today, but with a renewed purpose. This year, Truth in Life Today is becoming more personal, more interactive. Added to the many ways we freely deliver our Bible teaching, Truth in Life Today videos, both archived and current, will be easily accessible through our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or at truthinlifetoday.com. How is it more personal, more interactive? Well, each episode will be designed around your personal Bible study or small group study with Dr. John Newfeld leading the way. And every episode will provide you with study notes available through truthandlifetoday.com. So join us as we launch a new generation of Truth and Life Today. For more information or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at Back to the Bible 
www.thepowerhouse.ca.